Do you love Uncover from CBC Podcasts? What's your favorite season? Which one did you skip? What do you want to hear more of? Help us make Uncover even better by taking our listener survey now. Visit cbc.ca slash uncover survey to make sure your voice is heard. This is a CBC Podcast. We started this story looking for answers about Alberta Williams' unsolved murder. But the deeper we got into the story, the more I thought about the bigger questions. Why are there over 1,200 cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women in Canada? Why are we more likely to be physically and sexually assaulted? Why are we more likely to be killed? What is at the root of this horrific violence? My hope in telling Alberta's story is to begin to connect the dots. That by telling a single story, we can help illuminate something bigger. And a warning that some of the material in this episode is difficult to hear and may be triggering for some people. After Jack refused to talk to us, we thought our story might be over. We headed back on the ferry to Vancouver but there was one more lead we wanted to look into before flying back to Toronto. We heard there was someone else who might have information, someone who might have been at Jack's house the night Alberta disappeared. Alberta's sister Claudia told us to try to talk to one of her cousins. I don't know. They keep their distance from the Marsons. Alberta's aunt Donna Samuel called us. She had also heard that Jack wasn't the only one at his house that night, that he had a nephew who was staying in a spare bedroom. They don't come from up there. Mm-hmm. And according so to Donna, Jack put him on a bus the very next day. She said his nephew never picked up his last check from the cannery where he worked that summer. Donna said his name is Brad Marsden and that he lives in Vancouver. We tracked Brad down, and he agreed to meet us for a coffee the next day. We met at a Starbucks in the Kitsilano neighborhood in Vancouver. Brad didn't want us to record our conversation, but we talked to him for over two hours. It was intense. It was more than a conversation. It was an education. Brad is in his 40s now and works as a facilitator, giving presentations about Canadian history but not the history that's typically taught in schools. Brad speaks about the true history of the relationship between Indigenous people and the rest of Canada. Our conversation that day stayed with me for a long time, not only because of what he told us about the night Alberta died, but because Brad helped me begin to understand how her murder and the story of her family and community could be connected to this Canadian history that he's so passionate about teaching. We called Brad again a few months later, hoping he would change his mind about an interview. Hey Brad, how's it going? Uh, nervous. <laughs> you don't I'll have be to... up front, I'm not going to beat around the bush, it's, uh, it's a little nerve-wracking. Despite his nerves, this time he agreed to let us record our conversation. 
Right. Okay. And um, what are we going to be talking about? I think that what we're hoping is to talk about a lot of what we talked about that day at the Starbucks. In 1989, like Alberta, Brad was working in the fishing industry in Prince Rupert, British Columbia. I was working in the fish cannery. I was working there. I usually go there every summer. So that particular summer, I was got there, I believe, in the beginning of July, and I was I usually head back in end of August for to start school. What was the city like back then? Do you remember? Has it changed? It's Rupert. Yeah. You know, as a young boy growing up, that was the mecca. It was, you know, like when the fishermen came in and all of the money was flowing around. And it was a really, really busy small town. It was tough. Brad worked long hours in the cannery. And at night, he slept in his car. He had nowhere else to go. So he was grateful when his Uncle Jack and Aunt Rosie offered him a place to stay. And so that summer, you ended up staying with your Uncle Jack? Yes, I did. We never really connected all that much with my dad's side of the family, which would have been his wife, my Auntie Rosie. And um, they offered me a place to stay. And, uh, you know, uh, it was a great, great gesture. And I love them for it. Yeah, so that's how I ended up there. Did you know <clears throat> Alberta at all? You know, like I mentioned, you know, the dynamics surrounding my family concerning my dad. My dad passed away, and I never really got to know that side of the family my dad's side of the family, so to answer you that, no, I didn't really connect with them. So would Alberta have been like your distant cousin? Is that how how it worked, or were you more related to Jack's side of the family? No, I was more related to... Alberta would have been um, my first cousin, because my dad and her mom were brother and sister. We wanted to talk about the night Alberta disappeared, but Brad started at the beginning of his own story. Brad is Gitsan, a nation from northwestern British Columbia. His father died when he was a baby, and his young mother was struggling on her own. So Brad and his brother Doug were left to live with their grandparents. I'm really forthcoming in my workshops, and I really tell them about my my uh, my experience in my childhood. And in the beginning, when I first started out, it, it was so hard to <laughs> to hold back some tears, you know. It was uh, emotional. But now, you know, uh, I've come out on the other end where, you know, I'm, I'm able to be, still be present and still acknowledge my history, my personal history, and uh, relate it to, you know, the broader picture of what happened to all of our people across the country. Brad's workshops focus on an era some say is the darkest chapter in Canadian history. Indian residential schools. And my life will never be the same because of all the trauma and terror I experienced in that school system. For over 100 years, 150,000 Indigenous children were taken from their homes. Children as young as four years old taken from their mothers and their fathers and forced to attend residential schools. They weren't allowed to go home they weren't allowed to speak their language. They weren't allowed to practice their culture. I just remember arriving there and donning new clothes and, of course, getting a haircut and sitting in a classroom and being with other girls and witnessing my brother get punched by the supervisor. 
Some kids had their heads shaved on arrival. Others had their names changed. Some were given a number. It was part of government policy. The goal was total assimilation, what became described as a campaign to kill the Indian in the child. When it came time for us to come back to our community, we were standing at the train station and uh, we didn't know who to watch for. I mean, who was this person? Who was mother? I didn't remember my mom. I didn't know who she was. I had forgotten everybody. We now know that thousands of children experienced horrific sexual and physical abuse. Thousands died in residential schools. Some of them died while trying to escape. The schools affected generations of families. There were over 130 schools across the country. The first one opened in the mid to late 1800s, and the last one closed in 1996. I am here to verify we were treated like a herd of animals. I saw children shivering in their beds because of the thin blankets. I saw girls forced to eat their own vomit. A Truth and Reconciliation Commission traveled across the country, recording testimony from thousands of survivors. Testimony about their experiences in residential schools, but also about how the legacies still affect communities today. You're probably wondering why the history lesson? What does learning about residential schools have to do with Alberta Williams' murder? Truthfully, I don't know exactly yet, but I'm betting there is a connection. In the years that I've been focused on reporting on stories of missing and murdered Indigenous women, one of the things I've noticed is how similar so many of the women's stories are. At CBC News, we compiled a database with over 250 profiles of women whose disappearance or death is still unsolved, including Alberta's. And as you read their stories, you begin to see patterns in the violence, to connect the dots. You begin to understand just how closely these issues are related, or rather, how the legacies of residential schools impact all of the issues we see in our communities today. There is not one Aboriginal person in this country who has not been touched by the residential school experience. I was in the room when Justice Murray Sinclair said that at the final Truth and Reconciliation event in 2015. It was a truth that every Indigenous person in the room understood. It's a truth that Brad Marsden knows too well. I'm a product of the people who raised me, you know, like they had their experiences with colonization and residential schools. You know, a lot of those viewpoints, beliefs, fears, anger, that molded a lot of our community's minds. And I'm just a five-year-old little boy coming into this world. I'm very dependent on my caregivers. And, you know, my mind was developed. It's very influenced by residential school. The way I view the world is probably very similar to some of the survivors because you only teach what you know, right? So you were a survivor as well, in a way. Yeah. Today we call it intergenerational survivors. Even though I never went to those residential schools, my primary caregivers did. And, you know, like their views and attitudes and outlooks in life were heavily influenced by the residential school. I think I was so moved by talking to Brad because I felt like I wasn't only learning about him, but that in a way I was also learning about myself and my family. 
about how my own childhood experiences give me a unique understanding about how these issues are connected. Because in some ways, the violence at the root of this issue made me who I am. I don't have a lot of memories from my childhood, but the ones I do remember are frightening. My father was an alcoholic, and he used to hit my mother. I remember many times being woken up in the night by the yelling and the violence. Sometimes we would run away from him and hide in the alleys, worried he was coming after us. At the time, I didn't know that he was a residential school survivor, sent to Capel Indian Residential School when he was a child. I still don't know what happened to him there, but I can imagine, because the pain and the fear he inflicted on us came from somewhere in him. It was bad for a long time, but it ended in one night when I was seven years old, the night he threatened to kill my mother. I remember being paralyzed with fear, but not much else. I don't remember how we got out of that room. The rest of the night and the days afterward are a blur, but I know the police were called. He went to jail, and we didn't see him again for years. We had escaped, the lucky ones. Having those kinds of experiences as children can't help but shape who you become as an adult or what you do. So why are you compelled to do this kind of work? What is it about you know, you and your experience that, that makes you want to do this? Because I can't imagine it's an easy job. No. Um, you know, that, that is a great question that I often ask myself. Because of my history, my personal upbringing, and part of the residential school was, you know, like there's a lot of lack of affection. I was always wondering why my, you know, nobody gave me a hug or told me they loved me. And so, you know, as a child, you grew up with these perceptions about yourself that either you're unlovable, unwanted, or unworthy. And so I'm not going to lie, that kind of stayed with me, you know, and doing these workshops, it sort of helps me personally to go against those beliefs about myself. You said you were a kid that felt <clears throat> unloved and unwanted? Yeah, yeah, you know, and... Uh, Brad didn't want to go into detail about his childhood or how the trauma he experienced may have affected the way he responded to events on the night Alberta disappeared. So what did Brad know about the night Alberta vanished? Remember, Alberta told her sister Claudia that she was going to a party at Jack's house. His wife Rosie was out of town that weekend. Claudia said Jack denied hosting a party. Police say that Jack told them that Alberta did go to his house after the bar with a mysterious white guy who drove a pickup truck. But when he woke up the next morning, they were both gone. Jack wouldn't tell us what he remembered about that night, but Brad was asleep in the back bedroom. What did he know about the night Alberta disappeared? Hey, I'm Charlie Webster. I'm the host of a show called Scamanda. It's all about a woman from California named Amanda C. Riley, a beloved member of her local community and dying of cancer. But it was all one big lie. 
If you think you know what Scamander is about, think again. There is so much to the story that you will not see coming. The pregnancy is reversing the cancer. Listen to the show everyone is talking about. The Twisted Journey of Scamander is available now wherever you get your podcasts. Was it a big house or a small house? Like how far was your room from the living room? Probably about maybe 30 feet. How many bedrooms were there? I believe it was three. I know that, you know, it was a long time ago, but what do you remember <clears throat> about the the night that Alberta went missing? I was asleep when I heard voices, and I can't say whose voices they were. They could have been anybody's, but yeah, I was asleep, and then I woke up probably about three or somewhere. I, I don't even know what time. It's been so long, but I can't even think about, you know, whose voices or how many voices... Did you recognize Jack's voice? No, I, I don't remember. I don't think in terms of, geez, who's out there? I'm just like, geez, can I get some sleep? And, you know, but I was I was very, you know, appreciative of being there in the first place. And I just probably put a pillow on the side of my head and just covered my ears. Do you remember hearing anything else or anything else stick out in your mind about that night? No, no, nothing at all. Nothing at all. It was just, you know, like... Um, being around, <laughs> you know, you just kind of understand that someone's partying in the living room and you just try your best to go to sleep. You want to avoid that? Yeah, you just try to avoid it. You understand it. Oh, well, there's some people out there and I'm just going to try my best to get back to sleep and get to work in the morning. Although Alberta's aunt and her sister both heard the rumors about Brad, in 27 years, neither had ever asked him if it was true. We heard that you were staying at Jack's that summer, but that he put you on a bus shortly after Alberta disappeared. Is that true? Wow. 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 The Whoever told you that is, wow. That's all I got to say is that is totally, totally not true. That didn't that happen. That's a good question. That absolutely didn't happen. Um, I wonder how somebody would have fabricated that story or came up with that story. I mean, it was that you were put on the bus not long after Alberta disappeared and that you didn't pick up your last paycheck at the fishery. Yes, and I believe we spoke about that as well. As you know, They sent me my check to Prince George, right? So, Oh, so that's true, but that was not out of the ordinary? For me to leave my check? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've done that in the past where, so I didn't want to wait around for my last check in order to, to leave, right? They usually sent me my last check in the mail. So Brad didn't see anything on the night Alberta disappeared. And although he heard voices, he says he didn't hear a fight or a disturbance. And he didn't even know if Alberta was there that night. Does anything stand out in your mind about the next few days? Not really. All I remember is I spoke to Claudia. Um, I was having lunch at one of the restaurants and she came in and I said that there were, you know, I heard some voices in the in the house and, you know, and that's all I, all I know. And that's the only thing I really, I can remember is sticking out after the couple of days went by. What about with Jack himself? Because Claudia's told us that almost immediately questions started being asked of Jack about what happened that night. Mm-hmm. 
I hate to say it, but you know, I, I I was at work for 12 to 14 hours a day, and you know, like when I get home, all I knew that they left me uh, a dinner out to eat at 10 o'clock. I I, I loved that, you know. I was so appreciative of that for somebody to leave out a, a meal for me, and then I just quickly go to bed after that, and I really didn't have any contact with anybody. You know, 7:30 a.m. gone till possibly 10, 10:30 at night. You. <clears throat> had mentioned the party or what you thought was you heard was a party to Jack in the in the days um, following I don't think I mentioned it to him I believe he may have said that wasn't the party and that was about it that's all I remember Brad said it wasn't until weeks later after he left Prince Rupert that police came to talk to him about Alberta's murder so what do you remember about that visit from the police I remember they showed up at my door, and we went down to a local detachment. I remember them hypnotizing me, asking me various questions about, do I remember a color of a truck? Do I remember voices? Do I remember license plates? And uh, I just told them, you know, I don't remember it, because I was sleeping, right? They hypnotized you? Yeah. I was aware of where I was, but I guess I was totally relaxed. And after that, one of the gentlemen, uh, he mentioned, he goes, wow, you were really, you were really under, weren't you? I'm like, I didn't feel like it. Wow. Yeah. So I believe they did a lie detector. Something standing out to me about that. Do you remember anything about what you told them? I mean, did you remember seeing a truck? No, I don't even know where they would have got that. And what about the voices? Did Were you able to give them any information about the voices? No, no. According to the RCMP, Jack told them that he saw Alberta get into a truck with a white guy after the bar that night. Do you have any recollection of a white guy being around? Around Jack's place? Yeah. No, no, not at all. How would you yeah. describe your relationship with Jack <clears throat> that summer? You know, I really like Jack. He's very friendly and uh, he's very talkative and jokey. And uh, it just felt good to have my auntie and my uncle open their house to me. And it's one of those things that you remember, you know, it goes against your your own personal self-concepts. You know, the, the unlovable, unwanted, unworthy. And it's nice that, you know, to be seen in that way. So it was nice. It was nice. That is really nice. Certainly, you must have heard rumors about that night and about Jack's potential involvement, because we've also heard them. I don't believe them. Uh, I believe that they probably just had some beers and then everybody went their separate ways, and that's what I believe. So getting back to your question, I don't believe the rumors. I'm a little disappointed that Brad doesn't remember more from the night Alberta disappeared. When we first spoke, Brad talked more about his childhood. He didn't go into details, but he alluded to reasons that might explain why his instinct was just to put a pillow over his head that night, and in general, keep his head down. You know, I never heard about the residential school until I was about 23 or 24, and I came out of my mother's womb, and boom, I was introduced to this was my world, you know, the Indian reservation, you know, like these negative social problems that we see that are in our communities today, this was what I thought was just the way it is on the reservation, right? Now that I know what exactly was in our history, all of the trauma that collectively our people across the land experienced, it was, it's kind of mind-boggling now that I think back, like, 
I was left to my own devices to sort of piece together my world. And 23 years old, when I heard about it, I was already hardwired. I was already had these deep set core beliefs about myself, my people and, and such, right? So that was something I also related to. I didn't know until I was an adult that my dad was a survivor of residential schools. By then, he quit drinking and embraced the culture and community that was taken away from him as a child. My dad not only overcame his addictions, he transformed his entire life. He became a cultural leader in his community and a loving and supportive father to me and my siblings. I think Brad's resilience also reminded me of my father's and my mother's. What is it exactly that you're trying to teach the people uh, who attend your workshops? Well, what I'm trying to teach is we've got all of these, you know, these negative stereotypes, you know, like Indians get everything for free, Indians are lazy, Indians, blah, 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 all of these negative stereotypes. And when I show about law and policy about, you know, like we weren't allowed to leave our reserves without a note, you know, and how helpless we were in the whole process of our children getting taken away. And so they start to really see how, how we changed as a result of all of these impacts. And then they can better understand us and, you know, go from a state of, you know, frustration, all oh, those Indians gets everything for free. Now it's more of a, oh, I see why these certain dynamics presented themselves in these communities. And I see why these Native people may uh, act the way they do, behave the way they do, think the way they do, and, and such. Alberta didn't go to residential school, but her Uncle Jack did. I found out when I googled his name. An article popped up, written by an Indigenous scholar, Jeff Corntassel. It's called Indigenous Storytelling, Truth-Telling, and Community Approaches to Reconciliation. In it, Jeff quotes many residential school survivors and covers much of the same subject matter as Brad's workshops, colonization, Canadian history, and the legacies of residential schools. We asked someone to read this next section, It's what Jack had to say about his experience in a residential school. To the public, I would say, listen. Listen to my story. Listen to our story. It is reality. This is what happened to me. This is what happened to my siblings. This is what happened to my parents. This is what happened to my grandparents. And I would paint a scenario and let them know how we were treated. My father would get beaten to a pulp by supervisors, and he still talks about it, and he is almost 74 years old. I would paint the scenarios of when residential schools came. I would want them to be in my shoes if they could. I would paint that scenario and say, Now the government agent is coming to your home and taking your child away. How would you feel? Here is what happened to me. You are hungry and you didn't eat that day. And so you stole from the kitchen. They taught us how to steal. If you got caught, heaven help you if you got caught. Then you really got punished. The residential school that Jack went to was called the Alberni Indian Residential School on Vancouver Island. 
I don't know when Jack attended or for how long, but the school was in operation for over 70 years. In 2015, it was discovered that students at the school were part of a nutritional experiment during the 1940s and 50s. The experiments were implemented by the federal government and involved deliberately denying children food and health care to study the effects of malnutrition. So tell my story and give them nothing but facts and ask them how they feel. So that is what I would do to the public at large. To the government, that is a different story. The government is a lot harder to deal with, but I would let them know that I am very hurt by what happened to myself, my siblings, my family. Honestly, ask them if a life is only worth this much. I have heard horrendous stories of when people got their money. Money is not going to solve it. You can't buy respect. You can't buy love. Along with the hunger, the loneliness, the isolation, the children at Alberni Residential School also had sexual predators in their midst. In 1995, a former supervisor named Arthur Plint pled guilty to 18 counts of indecent assault against children. Plint was a supervisor for 20 years at Alberni Residential School. His victims ranged in age from 6 to 13, and they gave horrifying testimony of brutal physical and sexual abuse. The judge who heard Plint's case called him a sexual terrorist and said, quote, the Indian residential school system was nothing more than institutionalized pedophilia. Plint was sentenced to 11 years, but was granted day parole six years later. In 2003, another supervisor at the same school was charged with 12 counts of assault. Donald Bruce Haddock pled guilty to four counts of indecent assault and was sentenced to 23 months in jail. I can't say for sure, but I think what Jack is referring to when he's talking about money and compensation is the Indian Residential School Settlement. Uh, No amount of money, no amount of money that we get can take the place of the pain and the torture and the physical and the abuse that we went through. Threatened with class action lawsuits for their role in residential schools, In 1999, the Canadian government agreed to pay $1.9 billion to survivors. The settlement included something called a common experience payment, $10,000 for anyone who attended a school. And if they experienced physical or sexual abuse, they could apply for more compensation. But first, they would have to prove it. My best friend today that suffered abuse that I had no idea about. Survivors would have to reveal in excruciating detail the abuse they experienced at residential school. Many survivors said it was a traumatizing process. Some said it wasn't worth the extra money they received. The tales of serious physical abuse are shocking. The stories of sexual attacks are more than some at the hearing can handle. You know, you only have to show me how to shower and clean and wash myself, how to wash my private and, my, you know, private parts of your body, you don't have to show a kid once or twice at the most, but not every day. I remember one interview that I did with a support worker who sat in with a survivor during her hearing. 
He said it was her first time ever telling anyone about the abuse she endured. Her first time ever saying the words aloud. And that throughout the hearing, she kept her head down and her voice never raised past a whisper. I just want to say again that some of this is going to be difficult to hear. But it was a formal process with government lawyers and people keeping track of every detail. Survivors were expected to give extremely specific accounts of the abuse they experienced as children. Was it level 5 sexual abuse, which they describe as repeated, persistent incidents of anal or vaginal intercourse? Were they penetrated with an object? Or was it level 3 sexual abuse, which is one or more incidents of intercourse? How harmful was this abuse to you? Did it result in serious dysfunction like psychosis? Or harm resulting in some dysfunction like PTSD or severe panic or anxiety attacks? And witnessing my brother get punched by the supervisor. And after going through all that, if a survivor couldn't prove their abuse, sometimes their claims were denied. I spent uh, about eight years in residential school. Both of my grandparents also went to residential school. My grandfather never said much about his experience. He was forced to go when he was six years old. My grandmother was sent to a residential school in Manitoba, and she hated it so much that she ran away. Luckily, she made it home, but she never went back, and she vowed none of her kids would ever go. I used to wish that my grandparents had lived to see the apology and to receive compensation for their experiences in residential schools. But after covering these stories and hearing just how harmful the process was for so many, I'm not so sure. I remember after leaving that coffee shop in Kitsilano, after our talk with Brad, thinking it would take some time to be able to process everything we'd heard. But in reality, we didn't have long, because along with the lesson on residential schools and colonization, Brad told us something that we hadn't heard before, that he wasn't the only person in that spare room at Jack's house on the night Alberta disappeared. His brother Doug was also there, asleep next to him. Brad thought we should talk to Doug, that Doug might remember more than he did. I do remember being um, at a place called Popeyes, and I do remember um, seeing people in around the table, and it's near a pool table, I believe. And we met Brad's brother, Doug Marsden, the very next day. Doug is a little older than Brad, so he was able to get into the bar on the night Alberta disappeared. Did you notice anyone else at the bar? Was Did you notice Claudia or any of the I didn't other? see Claudia. I didn't see Claudia. But I think I seen uh, Kathy. I think Kathy and Carol, Jack, and the guy I mentioned. And um, who else did I see there? Alberta. And, that, and you were staying at Jack's house that summer? Yes, I was. Yeah. And what happened after you left the bar that night? When I left the bar, I just went back to Jack's place and I went to sleep. And when I was sleeping, I remember being hearing noises out in the house. When I got up to go to the washroom, I seen everybody. I do remember seeing Carol there, and I do remember seeing Jack, and I do remember seeing Alberta. 
And so what was the scene there? Was it with people happy? Was it a party? Were people arguing? It, what was it was a it was a party. They were laughing. They were just making loud noises and that's all I heard. That's all I know what, how they were talking. And you didn't hear any kind of argument that night or I, anything out of the ordinary? I hadn't heard a thing. Not a thing at all. And so this is an important point. Gary and Rick were the RCMP officers who investigated Alberta's case. They didn't believe there was a party at Jack's house that night. Here's what Gary said when I asked him about it. Were, yeah. were you ever able to verify if anyone else went to that house there was party? No, nobody went. Nobody. Other than Alberta and this mystery person. And then when this person woke up, Alberta and this mystery person were gone. But Gary never talked to Doug. Neither did Rick. In fact, Doug says in the 27 years since Alberta's murder, he's never been interviewed by police. No, I wasn't interviewed at all. Because of the, the family, they used to think me and my brother looked very similar. We probably didn't when we were much younger, but now we look a little, you can tell the distinction between the two. Like, they seen my brother. They seen him all night, but they were actually talking to me. But if police so didn't know or didn't believe there was a party, they also didn't know that there were other potential witnesses that could have helped them find out what really happened to Alberta that night in 1989. Because Alberta disappeared that night, did you ever think I should talk to the police and say I saw her that night? Or did you ever think that you, you wanted to come forward with any information? A lot of times when the days go by, you don't really understand at the moment that maybe I should say something because um, maybe I should say something because you think something happened. I had no idea what happened. I had no idea. Doug says he didn't realize that he might have information the police would have wanted to know. But there is another reason why Doug might not have been eager to talk to the police. And it could also be the same reason that Jack refused to cooperate with them. The history of the RCMP in Indigenous communities is dark and troubled. I understand that there are racists in my police force. Uh, I don't want them to be in my police force. Admissions of racist police officers and shoddy investigations into the cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women. We can do better, and ladies and gentlemen, we will do better. It's been a troubled relationship for over 100 years. I'm deeply sorry for what has happened to you and the part my organization has played in it. That's RCMP Commissioner Bob Paulson at a Truth and Reconciliation event in 2014. He's apologizing for the RCMP's role in the Indian residential school system. Their police officers were often the ones forcibly removing children from their homes. And when the children ran away from residential schools, it was sometimes the RCMP who forced them to return. It was hearing directly from one survivor that helped Paulson come to terms with just how much the RCMP failed Indigenous children. We talked about the routines of the school, the buildings, the people, the smells, the sounds, the hallways, the beds, the memories. He eventually described in terrible detail being sexually assaulted by staff at the school and the sheer and utter horror of that experience. Because of it, he ran away. 
He went home. But we went and found him, and we brought him back. I think knowing this history is important. Having this context is crucial in understanding why there's a mistrust of police in Indigenous communities and why some witnesses in Alberta's case have stayed quiet for 27 years. On the next Missing and Murdered, Who Killed Alberta Williams? I don't know why they're not telling you guys the story. Are you sure it was Alberta? Yeah, that was Alberta. And she was with two guys in a black truck. And did you see them? No, my sister Amanda helped Alberta back in the truck. She she, she will tell you who they are. Hi. Is Amanda here? Is Amanda here? Missing and Murdered, Who Killed Alberta Williams is written and hosted by me, Connie Walker. The producer is Marnie Luke, and the associate producer is Lori Ward. Technical production by Ashley Walters and Harold Dupuis. Arif Narani is a consulting producer, and Heather Evans is senior producer of the CBC News Investigative Unit. You can listen to episodes online. Visit our website at cbc.ca slash whokilledalbertawilliams or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. For more CBC Original Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash originalpodcasts.